0: Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and some special guests. This week we have Dustin Lance Black, Kate Kendall, Jared Scherer, Sandy Steer, Chris Perry, Paul Katami, and Jeff Zarilla. On Defining Marriage, we trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage, and how fighting for marriage in turn changed them. Chapter 16. Love and Commitment. The FBI agents showed up at Thalia Zapatos' campaign office one afternoon with a local police chief and asked the top staffers to join them in a back room. We know that the skinheads are plotting to kill one of you, the chief told them we just don't know which one it is. It was 1992, and Oregon's Measure 9 was about to amend the state constitution to specify that homosexuality is abnormal, wrong, unnatural, and perverse. Thalia was one of the leaders on the campaign to stop it. Thalia wasn't gay, but had been pulled into the No on 9 campaign due to her successful leadership on some pro-choice measures over the previous few years. This election season was unlike anything she'd ever seen. Vandals broke into their offices, one staffer was run off the road, another had their brake lines cut. Before it had even been voted on, Measure 9 had emboldened the most violent of homophobes in the state, and filled the community with fear. In the two months before the election, there were 87 reported crimes against gay men and lesbians. The worst came in September, when a group of four skinheads tossed a Molotov cocktail into the basement of a home in Salem, killing the gay man and lesbian who lived there. The police advised Salia to install a chain-link fence around her campaign office, so if someone threw a firebomb, it would bounce back, as long as they didn't throw it too high. This was not particularly comforting advice. "'Why don't you just quit?' her friends asked. "'We can live and fight another year.' But if anything, the intimidation efforts hardened her resolve. As a straight woman, she hadn't realized just how much work was still needed to protect gays and lesbians. All of a sudden, I went from being in the majority straight culture to driving around the state with no-on-nine lawn signs and having a pickup truck following me, and not knowing if they were going to do something nasty, she said. For the first time, I was part of the other. She stayed with the campaign, successfully beating back Measure 9 by 44% to 56%. That was a relief, but she was still stunned at the intensity of the opposition. Nearly half the state was willing to call gays and lesbians unnatural and perverse, not just in the law, but in the state constitution. Something had to be done to change that attitude. The skinheads, not exactly known for their capacity for insight and reflection, were probably beyond Thalia's powers of persuasion. But she knew that the hundreds of thousands of Oregonians who voted for the amendment weren't evil people. Many of them were probably in the same position she had occupied before the election, straight, privileged, unable to put themselves in the shoes of LGBTs, or imagine what it was like to be persecuted. This is where most people might have bowed out. She'd won the campaign, made it through unscathed, and could have easily retreated back to the relative peace of abortion activism. But Thalia was determined to stick with this cause, even though she was straight. Now that she'd felt just a tinge of what it was like to be a mistreated sexual minority, she never wanted to feel it again, and she didn't want anyone else to feel it either. Ending homophobia might mean risking a firebomb or two, but she wasn't backing down. Thalia was a mainstay of various LGBT issues in Oregon over the next decade, She mentored LGBT candidates running for office, and contributed however she could when LGBT issues were on the ballot. Then came 2004, when she worked on a campaign to block a constitutional marriage ban. This time, her side went down in flames. Voters approved the ban 57% to 43%. Thalia was frustrated by the loss, and a little baffled. The campaign had done everything it could to highlight the need for marriage equality, even printing lists of all the rights that gay couples are denied to hand out door-to-door. They aired TV commercials featuring a judge in a law library lecturing viewers about inalienable rights. As it turns out, those messages were a little too persuasive. The message that voters received was that for LGBTs, judges and rights defined marriage, not love and commitment. In other words, the campaign had successfully portrayed gay marriage as something that was completely different from straight marriage. There were hints of this disconnect during the canvassing. Thalia recalled speaking to voters at their doorsteps. She'd present stories about the various legal protections afforded by Oregon marriage laws, but all anyone wanted to talk about was the lesbian relationship that season on the show ER. After several years, Dr. Weaver had just had a baby with her partner Sandy. Fictional characters were resonating better than real-life facts and figures. Thalia was flummoxed. What is it we're doing wrong, she thought. Why are they so engaged with that story? Although she couldn't immediately put her finger on it, they were clearly on to something important. Voters weren't engaged by the campaign's messages about inheritance law and social security benefits, but they could identify with the loving couple on television. The capacity to love, to commit, to build a relationship based on devotion and sacrifice, these were the true building blocks of any strong, stable couple, and it didn't matter if they were gay or straight. Maybe, she thought, she could figure out a way to get voters to see that gay couples want the same thing from marriage as straight couples. Perhaps then, the casual homophobia of the majority might simply disappear. If gays stopped being other, then there wouldn't be an impulse to treat them any differently. In other words, Thalia had to find a way to guide voters through the same experience she'd had during that rough 1992 campaign, when she'd come to see the world through gay eyes. This time, without the firebombs. She and her husband sold their house in Oregon and moved to Los Angeles to work on a new marriage equality project called Let California Ring. It was a grueling process. Research messages, train volunteers, and conduct outreach, then test, refine, and repeat. Why do gay people get married? She asked an early focus group of straight voters. The answer was a little disparaging. They had absolutely no idea. Or maybe, they thought, gays defined marriage as a political stunt. Voters had seen queers flocking to city halls in jeans and t-shirts for spur-of-the-moment licenses in 2004. That sure didn't look like a normal straight wedding, they thought. Gay weddings must be different. Whatever the case, Thalia was told, gay couples obviously wanted to marry for the wrong reasons. This was depressing, but it was at least a start. She had identified the disconnect, and now she could go about correcting it. That took the form of an experimental ad that only aired in one California county. It was called Garden Wedding, and it featured a heterosexual wedding day where everything goes wrong. The bride gets locked in her dressing room, then blocked from the ceremony by parked cars. Her veil is knocked off by an intrusive canopy, and she's tripped by a relative while walking down the aisle. The groom, moving to help her, is restrained by the wedding party as the bride sits miserably on the ground. What if you couldn't marry the person you love, the ad says at the end. Every day, gay and lesbian couples are prevented from marrying. Okay, it's a little on the nose, but after it aired, support for marriage rose 11 points in Santa Barbara, compared to no movement in the county next door and that shift seemed to linger long after the commercial aired in 2007. A year later, Santa Barbara was the only county in Southern California to reject Proposition 8. People got drawn into the feeling, Thalia said. It was a window into where we needed to go, getting straight people to put themselves in someone's shoes. The focus testing and refinement continued, and now they could see that they were on to something. When they showed their ads to voters, Thalia could see the light bulb suddenly shine in their heads. During one session, she showed footage of Phyllis and Dell getting married— On the screen, the two women gazed at each other, surrounded not only by family and friends, but by decades of unyielding devotion to each other. One of the participants, a suburban mom, was shocked. I know this sounds funny, she said, but I never imagined that gay people could get old. What does marriage mean to you? Thalia asked. Over and over and over, from everyone she asked, she heard the same response. Love and commitment. Love and commitment. Love and commitment. Oh, of course that. The years of battling over marriage in one state after another had seen the definition muddied and bogged down, with so much baggage that nobody could remember what marriage even meant anymore. For some people, marriage was about acceptance, and for others, liberation. Marriage might be a hypothetical dream, or it could be a cake, or a baby, or fairness, or equality, or it might be a solution to the AIDS crisis, an ode to tradition, a reinvention of a rite, a sacrament, or a cipher, a trauma, or a salve, a tool of oppression, or a means to acceptance. But what was it really? It was love and commitment. Love and commitment. Love and commitment. Okay, message received. If voters wanted to hear about love and commitment, then the campaigns could oblige. Thalia, who was by now working with Evan Wolfson at Freedom to Marry, started telling anyone who would listen that they needed to ditch the commercials about rights and equality and blast voters with love stories instead. Along with Ed Murray in Washington, voters in Maine, Maryland, and Washington all faced marriage votes in November of 2012, and they would probably reuse the old, failed messaging unless someone sounded the alarm. We have lost 31 states following that strategy, she told a meeting of organizers in Minnesota. They were convinced that they needed to frame their campaign around constitutional protections. Believe me, it cannot work. Thalia and her colleagues at Freedom to Marry kept pushing for change in the four battleground states, and to their relief... State leaders were willing to listen. After all, by now, her new strategy had several years of research to back it up. But then again, it had also never been tested in an actual election. Would this new direction actually work? By 2012, she'd managed to get all four battleground states on board with the new plan. They were about to find out. Though her attention was split between the four states... Thalia devoted significant attention to the work of Minnesota activist Richard Karlbaum, the 30-year-old campaign manager of Minnesotans United for All Families. Richard, a lifetime Minnesotan, had a wonky passion for politics. After entering college as a Republican, he'd switched to supporting Democrats after hearing George W. Bush's anti-gay rhetoric. A year after graduating, he ran for mayor of his small college town in 2005 and won at the ripe old age of 23. "'I have a calling to policy,' he told a reporter after his victory. "'I love politics. I love this process. "'To me, it's one of the most exciting things to do.'" But the 2012 marriage campaign was also personal. He was eager to marry his fiancée, Justin. A year earlier, Richard and Justin traveled to the Capitol to see the legislature vote on a marriage equality ban. When the bill passed a preliminary vote, thanks to heavy Republican support, the crowd of gay and lesbian onlookers howled with pain. "'Shame,' they chanted. "'Shame! "'Shame!' Richard looked at Justin. "'Standing here and shouting at these people isn't going to make me feel any better,' he said. At that moment, they spotted John Creasel, one of the Republican representatives who had spoken out against the ban. "'If this was five, six years ago, I probably would have voted yes, because I didn't think about it,' John had said that night. "'I just thought about my family. I thought about what affects my wife and my kids and nothing else.' He spoke about serving in Iraq and nearly being killed in a roadside bomb that destroyed both of his legs." Lying there in a war zone, his body mangled in near death. I remember thinking about my wife and my kids. That's what crossed my mind. That's what kept me fighting. The love I had for them. He paused. What would I do without my wife, he asked. Happiness is so hard to find. So they find someone that makes them happy, and we want to take that person away? John's voice nearly cracked with emotion, but he forged ahead, determined. This amendment doesn't represent what I went to fight for. Richard and Justin moved to intercept John as he exited the chamber, intending to thank him for his support. But when Richard tried to speak, he could only cry. Richard instantly understood Thalia's advice about focusing on love, and from his small office in the Dinkytown neighborhood of Minneapolis, he collaborated with Freedom to Marry to craft TV commercials that were a significant departure from previous campaigns. In one of their new ads, a straight Republican couple talks to the camera about what marriage means to them. It's a commitment to forever, says Kim Canny. Her husband jumps in. Marriage is really important to me. I didn't really think a lot about same-sex marriage. Kim adds, we had a gay couple live in our neighborhood and they adopted a little son. They were the most wonderful neighbors and it taught all of us in our little suburban world it's okay to take a second look. In another Minnesota commercial, a Lutheran bishop and his wife talk about meeting gay couples who want to marry. These brothers and sisters in Christ deserve my full support, the bishop says. In response, the anti-equality side ran scare tactic ads, as they had done successfully in 30 states before. If gay marriage happens here, schools could teach that boys could marry boys, said a scared woman's voice. It was a copy of a Prop 8 commercial, and of two nearly identical ads running that year in Maryland and Maine. Richard and Thalia were ready for that. Within hours, they had a counterattack on the air. Allowing everyone the freedom to marry won't change our kids' values, a mom tells the camera. Because they get those values from us, her husband adds. The message, that gay couples are in love just like straight couples, and that they don't pose a threat, seemed to be getting through. Thalia and Richard spent a few days touring the state in a campaign RV, visiting remote towns, and they were startled by the level of support that they found. Way up north in Tiny Hibbing, a former iron mining outpost, the town motto, We're Ore and More, there was a little rally to greet them on the main street of town. Volunteers showed up to a phone bank in a little Lutheran church, and Thalia chatted with a straight couple manning the phones learning that they regularly drove two hours to volunteer at the campaign office. From there, it was on to Duluth, where Thalia chatted with a man directing traffic for a pro-equality rally at another church. He told her that the campaign had dominated all of his time the last few months, and she joked, You might be looking forward to getting your life back. I wish this campaign would never end, he told her. It has been the most remarkable experience of my entire life. Getting on the phone every single day and talking to real people about what really matters, I feel like I've made more of an impact than anything else I've ever done. At another church, Thalia joined volunteers for a spaghetti dinner, followed by yet more phone banking. She spotted a group of elderly women at the dinner, and wondered if they would stay to volunteer. As it turned out, they'd already been canvassing door-to-door. "'We meet every Wednesday night,' one of the ladies said. "'We're the quilting group. But when we're quilting, we tell each other about the conversations we've been having with our neighbors.' Thalia was blown away. This was like nothing she had seen in her decade of research and outreach." In the Iron Range, in northern Minnesota, these 70- and 80-year-old women were having a weekly conversation about gay marriage, she thought. I realized we could really win this thing. This, she realized, was what a true civil rights movement looked like. Spontaneous action on many fronts, she said. Freedom to marry didn't control everything. The legal groups didn't control everything. Nobody's controlling everything anymore. They didn't have to. The campaign only needed to provide a framework for the conversation and to suggest a few talking points. The people of the state were ready to take it from there. Straight voters were finally putting themselves into gay couples' shoes. Thalia and Richard returned to the city of St. Paul for election night, joining 200 staffers and several thousand supporters in a convention center to await the results. Slowly, the returns trickled in. It was going to be close. The hours ticked by with no clear outcome, and Richard kept checking his watch. They'd only booked the convention center until 1.45 a.m., "'Sometime after 1 a.m., he called a hundred or so staffers into a room "'and stood before them at a messy table covered in half-empty wine glasses "'and boxes of pastry crumbs. "'He thanked everyone for coming in an impromptu speech "'that he hoped would signal that it was time to go home. "'The fact of the matter is, it is really, really close,' he said. "'There could be a miscount, a mistake.' "'He glanced at his watch one more time. "'It's one forty, and we have to be out of here by 2,' he said. "'You should all go to bed tonight feeling incredibly proud of the work that you've done.' "'In the last seven days, we have fucking called 900,000 people.' "'The room exploded in cheers. "'I suspect that we will not have a result before 2 a.m., he said, "'so we will have to ask everybody to leave.' "'He reminded them that there would be a staff call at 10 a.m., "'and the cheers became groans. "'I want you to go to bed tonight,' he went on. "'I want you to be proud of the result we have.' "'Richard,' said Kelly Schwinghammer, standing off to the side. "'She was the campaign's communications manager "'and had been furiously thumbing around on her phone for the last few moments.' Now she looked up in delight. Associated Press just called it. Richard thrust up his arms and let out a scream, and the room burst into cheers and sobs and hugs. They'd won. Not just in Minnesota. Following the same strategy, marriage equality campaigns had also won over voters that night in Maine, Washington, and Maryland. In all four states, the love and commitment strategy had gripped voters and carried the elections. It was just a few months later when Ken Melman paced in an airport lounge at LAX. He was heading back to New York after meeting with some investors for his day job as global head of public affairs for a private equity firm. It was late June of 2013, the last day that the Supreme Court could issue a ruling on California's Prop 8. This was it, the day of truth for Ken and Chad and Lance and everyone else who worked at AFER, including me. Ken was glued to the TV in the lounge, having made an airport employee switch channels from Sports News to Bloomberg, provoking angry looks from the other travelers. His plane was leaving in 20 minutes, then 15, then 11. I wonder how long I can hold here, he thought to himself. And then finally, the newscaster made the call. Prop 8 had been overturned. Once in a while, a decision by the Supreme Court is etched into the granite of our history, said a reporter. Americans remain divided over today's ruling, but history was written. Most of the day was a blur. The plaintiffs were standing in giddy amazement before the Supreme Court when Chad Griffin ran over. The President's on the line, he said, tapping at his phone, from Air Force One. Hello, uh, Mr. President, said Chris Perry. Thank you so much for your support, Sandy Steer beamed. Well, we're proud of you guys, Obama's voice floated out from the phone. Through your courage, you're helping a lot of people everywhere. Paul and Jeff, the other two plaintiffs, charged over and craned their necks between the two women's shoulders. Thank you, Mr. President, Jeff hollered. I always had faith we would be here today, said Dustin Lentz Black, standing in the middle of a celebrating crowd in downtown West Hollywood. I thought of Harvey Milk. We can no longer continue to demand crumbs of equality. We have to demand the full thing. Behind the scenes, Afer knew that the ruling was coming, since it was the last day of the Supreme Court's session. A small staff had spent the day frantically arranging a rally, erecting a stage and lights on a closed-off street by West Hollywood Park. I was there with a camera crew, doing my best to livestream the rally through the borrowed Wi-Fi of a nearby LGBT Center office. James was somewhere in the crowd of several hundred, and from up on the stage, I searched for his face. I couldn't find him. Today is a good day, Jeff gushed to reporters. It's the day I finally get to look at the man I love and say, Will you please marry me? I was crouched in front of the stage at the rally, surrounded by reporters and with my back to a roaring crowd. My state was one of shock. I couldn't believe we had done it. Prop 8 was gone. Marriage had returned to California. Now everyone could go have the wedding they'd always wanted. It wasn't until the rally was over that I finally found James as the crowd dispersed. He was standing with some friends off to the side. He looked calm, but I knew that a marriage rally wasn't exactly his element. James held a tiny little American flag. Chad, a master of political optics, had always emphasized patriotism in Aver's signage. And in the other hand, he tightly clutched a sign that said, "'Marry who you love.'" I felt a momentary surge of panic. Oh God, was he about to propose to me? Here? Was that sign a sign? I knew that if he was to propose, something would have to be terribly wrong. He'd be doing it because he thought it's what I wanted, not because he actually wanted to be married himself. After all, I'd been nagging him about marriage for years. Every time my birthday came, I got my hopes up, and when no proposal happened, I'd hint that I was expecting one. Though this happened several years in a row, it always took him by surprise. Why would you expect that? he'd ask, genuinely confused. Well, you know, I'd fumble, I think we've got a pretty good thing going here. So why would we get married? he'd say. We had the love... We had the commitment. And for years, I kept waiting for those two things to add up to a piece of paper. But since we'd moved to L.A. for the Prop 8 trial, things had changed. Meaning the old guard had opened my eyes. There were those longtime couples like Phyllis and Del who managed to sustain a relationship even when marriage was an impossible joke. Ninia and Janora, who proved that immersion in marriage can't sustain a relationship on its own. Andrew Sullivan, whose determination in the 80s showed me that you don't have to want marriage for yourself in order to believe in the moral imperative of equality, and Tim and Juan, scrambling to marry in the final moments of the Prop 8 vote count, finding that a promise to each other is the purest distillation of a happy relationship. Thalia's research had scientifically identified the heart of a successful marriage, and it was something that James and I had all along—love and commitment. Most importantly, because of all those people I'd met, I'd seen that marriage, when it works— is a joint effort. It's not something that you can unilaterally demand, or that James could reluctantly relent to after years of nagging. A marriage to someone who doesn't want to be married wasn't really a marriage. The meaning lay in the agreement, the overlap of our emotions. At this point, James had transplanted his life for me, ceaselessly supported my work, and now here he was forcing himself to a rally on my behalf for a cause that he shunned. He was the one person in the crowd who wasn't there to support AFER and the lawsuit and the cause. He was there to support me. Nothing and no one else. Just me. For ten years, I'd craved a proposal because I thought that only marriage could make our love and commitment secure. But I was as blind to the meaning of it as the marriage movement was when it was at its worst, depending on the institution of marriage to define relationships, instead of the other way around. It's just a word— A complicated, heavy, loaded word, to be sure. Inside of it lives the anarchy of Fagala Ben Miriam, the strategy of Mike Marshall, the comfort that young Dan Savage felt seeing people like him, and the audacity of Clela Rorax. In the word marriage, we find Gavin Newsom's political bravado, the memory of Cal Anderson, and the sacrifice of Mary Margaret Haugen, Jared Scherer's desire to provide couples with the words to seal their bond. Marriage is defined by Dustin Lance Black's Oscar night appeal to the country and to the boy he once was. Gavin Creel's transformation under the Verrazano Bridge, Molly McKay's yearly pilgrimage to the wedding counter, and the yellowing invitations tucked into Frank Kameny's file folder deep in a vault in the Library of Congress, each ceremony a single mark of punctuation, in two entire lives promised to each other. We define marriage. It doesn't define us. I knew we were in that word somewhere, James and I, amongst the activists and the couples and the decades of struggle and love— What we had could easily meet the definition of marriage, and yet, after immersing myself in the word, I discovered that I no longer needed it. I already had what it meant, and that meaning was far more important than the word. Sure, the legal protections were vital, and the stigma of discrimination was toxic. From a social standpoint, marriage equality was absolutely essential. But did my relationship to James need marriage to survive? No. All I needed in that moment was to see him. No ring, no kneeling, no pretty words. Just him. I braced myself for the worst. Did he bring the friend along to take video? Was he going to try to say something along the lines of, Do me the honor? Ugh, so cliche, I thought. Hey, he said, unaware that my heart was racing. Is for collecting these signs or just throwing them out? Oh, I said, "Uh, just put it anywhere. He tossed it off to the side. I think we're going to go get a drink or something, he said. Do you want to come? We got home from the bar late that night and collapsed into bed. It had been a long day for me, and right before I lost consciousness, I felt his hand rub the back of my head. You should be proud, he said, referring to my role in restoring marriage in California. I was proud. I still didn't know what to call whatever James and I had. But whatever it was, I was proud of it. Prop 8 finally overturned. Hooray! Are you ready to throw some confetti and, and have a ticker tape parade for gay marriage?
1: Uh, it's a yes or no question. Don't gays have enough parades as it is? I suppose. We we do have, we,
0: we've got one every June, and then we're sneaking into parades here and there. So, well, we'll have to content ourselves
1: with what we've got. June is busting out all over.
0: So here we are at the end of the journey for Prop 8. But, of course, it wasn't exactly a win, because the Supreme Court just punted. Essentially, they said, we're going to let the lower court ruling stand. If you want us to rule, bring us a different case. So even though California got marriage back, it was after years of work and millions of dollars. And you have to ask, was it all worth it? Here's Paul Katami and Jeff Zarillo, two of the Prop 8 plaintiffs. To look down at your hand and, and see your ring and
2: know that that you have committed yourself and your life to this individual. I know we could have done that previously, but we took the path of most resistance to get to where we did. And I think
0: that made the journey worth it. You know, everything at the end was worth it. So he makes a good point. They could have gotten rings at any time. They could have gotten a civil union. So what was so special about that day of decision, the way the case ended? Well, To answer that, I asked a few people what they remembered from that day. Here's Dustin Lance Black.
2: I had a more emotional reaction than I thought. And it was delayed by about a half an hour. Uh, Because at first, I'm just blogging and calling people and talking to people. And then all of a sudden, the phone calls stop. And you've written all you need to, because there's not a whole lot to say. And then I broke down and I I wept in my living room. You could see the writing on the wall with the language in Windsor. And with what the decision in our case and that combination. You could see that this is going to be nationwide.
0: Lance wasn't the only one who had a more emotional reaction than he expected that day. Here's Kate Kendall with the National Center for Lesbian Rights.
2: I almost felt as if the last vestiges of grief that I hadn't even realized I'd been hanging on to in the wake of passage of Prop 8 were being washed away. I was you know, in front of the computer, uh, waiting, saw that we had won, and immediately ran and picked up Phyllis. By now, Del, Del died just shortly after they got married in 2008.
0: Phyllis and Dell are the pioneering lesbian activists who married at City Hall in San Francisco in 2004. That was a wedding that Kate had helped arrange.
2: Took Phyllis to City Hall, and it was pandemonium.
0: City Hall, it was packed. I mean, it was just wall-to-wall people in the rotunda. That's Jared Scherer, the volunteer marriage deputy we heard from a few chapters ago. He started marrying gay and lesbian couples right before Prop 8 passed, and he'd been waiting years to be able to do it again. A lot of people, including myself, had fished out their No on 8 posters from the campaign from several years back. And a lot of people were wearing their legalized gay t shirts from American Apparel and a lot of people were with their with their kids and families. Everyone got really hushed, you know, when CNN breaking news came on the screen. Um, everyone was kind of waiting with anticipation, and as soon as CNN basically said that Prop 8 is dead, the case has been dismissed, same-sex marriage resumes in California, everyone just went
2: completely crazy and wild and cheering and excitement."
0: And this was going on all over the state. People just felt changed changed how? Well, here's Dustin Lance Black again.
2: I I think at the core of anyone working in a civil rights movement is likely that moment that they realized as a kid that the way that they're different meant that they were going to be treated less than. And When you have a breakthrough like we did that day when the prop 8 and the windsor decisions came down you know that there's that that moment will cease to exist in the same way for a new generation and it'll start to get better so yeah
0: the prop 8 case wasn't a national victory it was just resetting us back to a state level win and in fact the supreme court would overturn all state marriage bans just two years later so california could have just waited two years and we'd have gotten marriage for free but when you listen to folks remember that day, you hear what it was that we won. Like Kate said, it washed away the last of the grief from Prop 8's passage. Jared felt that validation, that you're important, you're equal. And Lance, who grew up isolated and feeling like he was the only gay kid in the world, he knew that a ruling like this means that someday soon, that isolation and loneliness will all be a thing of the past.
2: There's a there's a, a healing that happens inside of you. And, and a healing that happens because you've protected that kid inside of you in a whole new way. And so you, you weep for that kid in you and you weep for the new generation and that's
0: why that day everyone felt like it was all worth it
1: i'll tell you what else is worth it yeah there's this peppermint mocha premixed stuff you can get around the holiday season and I've been going through like a gallon of it a day. It's like the Starbucks jug that you get at the, at the supermarket. It's my little brown jug and I love it. <laughs> Are you drunk on peppermint? You know when Muttley gets a medal and he drifts up into the air and he kind of hisses his way down, drifting like a piece of paper?
0: Sure, sure. That'll be the day when the, when you do something like that. I want to see you drift up in the air. Then <laughs> give me a medal. Okay. <laughs> or just some, some peppermint coffee. You get the peppermint coffee medal. I'll
1: pin it on you. I'm going to pin you. That'll also be the day. But before you get your just rewards, you must answer all my questions. I would really like the rewards, though. You're just going to get the questions. Rewards next? Depends on how the questions go. Oh, okay. I make no promises. But I also imply rewards.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. That's great. That's the most motivating thing a person can do. Oregon.
1: How do you pronounce it? Oregon. Not Oregon. I don't think so. It's not a geometric shape. I went my whole childhood going on the Oregon Trail. Real dysenteries and the, the shoot and the squirrels. Oh, it's pronounced dysentery. <laughs> oh, you provided a sound effect for us. How nice. <laughs> we're doing a little uh, documentary-style yeah, theater oh, of the mind. Yeah,
0: it's a radio. It's a real radio show. Next, we're going to have uh, some people walking through gravel and mm-hmm. uh, some thunder crashing. Yeah. Here it is.
1: <laughs> All right, calm your nerves. Okay. <laughs> Slow your roll here on the Foley cast. (laughs) Um, So, Oregano, when people think about it, they probably think of the town of Portland? Town? City? City. Uh,
0: They'll think of the the
1: city of uh, Portland. They might think of Eugene. They probably not. not. Eugene was the name of the Jeep on Popeye before he was called the Jeep. There was a... Oh, of
0: course he was. Of course he was. I, I keep forgetting that the Jeep from Popeye is not an actual vehicle.
1: Unless you pour a hot beverage on him. And then he becomes a vehicle? Erotically. Like Turbo Teen. Oh, of course. The of erotic course. teenager who turns into a car.
0: I, why does everything have to be erotic in this house? Fair
1: question. But I am not the one answering questions. You are the one answering questions. Why here today. That? Because you're the one. Oh, you just
0: answered a question.
1: <laughs> Ask away. You son of a bitch. <laughs> um, so the city of Portland, how representative is that of the state in general?
0: Portland is Portlandia and the rest of the state is Dukes of Hazard. I mean, that's that's not entirely fair, but I I think that's representative of... uh, Oregon actually has, like, a serious skinhead problem. Uh, There is a surprising level of neo-Nazi activity in Oregon. I'm not sure why that is, but, uh, you know, it's like California with the Central Valley. You get uh, outside the cities and the culture changes.
1: Are they ruled by a boss hog? Uh,
0: Probably, probably. Is it an actual pig? Uh, Yes, yeah. It's just a really nice, uh, really fat
1: pig (laughs) with the top hat and a monocle (laughs) uh
0: i'm I'm imagining what boss hog is because i have never seen the dukes of hazard oh
1: you i know i know so boss hog and his cronies tried to amend the state constitution to say that homosexuality was abnormal wrong unnatural and perverse yes
0: can you imagine that in the constitution
1: So why did they think they needed to put language like that in the Constitution? It was was it insufficient just to pass laws banning marriage or other specific things?
0: I don't know exactly what their strategy was there, but I assume that they just uh, really were going, if you pardon the pun, whole hog on the uh, anti-gay animus. There was a lot of LGBT acceptance finally starting to happen, so, you know, intense backlash in
1: response. It kind of strikes me as amending a state constitution to say, like, no girls allowed.
0: (laughs) It does seem like no fats, no femmes in the constitution.
1: Yeah, it's just a we don't like you, which is not a phenomenon I'm aware of happening in other constitutions. Like, are there other existing amendments that are currently on the books that are just saying we don't like a particular type of person
0: well it's possible in california because nobody knows what the fuck's in that constitution i mean (laughs) it's just so long uh i don't i don't know i don't think so i think there's probably this is one reason why that why that um ballot measure didn't win uh is because i'm sure a lot of voters looked at and they're like why do we need that how is that gonna
1: help which brings me to my next question after that failed uh they tried to put a marriage ban into the constitution correct correct And that passed by a pretty wide margin.
0: Yes, yes, that was a more practical measure than just we don't like you.
1: Why do you think it is that a pretty wide majority of Oregonians didn't want to put hateful language in the Constitution, but almost the same margin were totally comfortable banning marriage for same-sex couples?
0: Isn't that something, you know, in one hand it's kind of frustrating because the hateful language, uh, you know, sure does hurt on on a psychological level, but uh, it was the marriage thing that actually did a lot of real practical physical damage to, to people's lives. I would have to guess that, uh, you know, it's just the specificity of the marriage thing. You know, you put in some words about we don't like these people and, yeah, that's a little vague and it's hard to say exactly why that matters or that'll change your life. But, you know, you, may, you get real specific on marriage and suddenly it's like, oh, oh, OK, I see why I see why I want this. I as someone who is under the impression that gay people will harm the institution. Uh, now I get it. I think they just made a stronger case.
1: So after the marriage ban went into effect, Thalia Zapatos got involved, and she started to discover that people related more to fictionalized depictions of gays and lesbians than they were relating to the messages from the official campaigns. Correct. What role do you think pop culture and media had in changing perceptions in the run-up to the 2012 elections? Oh, that's
0: a good question. I would have to say probably intensely. Um, there, you know, as, as you see with, with Thalia, I mean, there was a period where uh, the actual work of trying to change people's minds, like the campaign work, was doing virtually nothing. Uh, it was all like all the heavy lifting was being done by like Will and Grace. Now, I'm trying to think back to 2012, though, because that's a really interesting question. What gay stuff was on mainstream TV and in the media in 2012?
1: It was obviously Modern Family. Uh, I don't know, because we were just watching Murder, She Wrote reruns.
0: That's true. That's true. And there's very few gay couples in that.
1: Uh, there's that drag show episode where she goes is. to, like, the drag palace.
0: Yes. There's a wonderful episode of Murder, She Wrote where she goes to a drag palace in San Francisco. It's, like, the most fancy ornate place that uh, does not really square with our experience of the city. But I don't know. Maybe it was different in the 1980s. As far as media in, the, in 2012 to affecting all those other states that pass marriage equality, I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'd be interested to hear listeners' thoughts on, on What shows might have uh, contributed to those
1: 2012 victories? Also, with LGBT people being such a relatively tiny proportion of the American population, a lot of people across the country may have never met an LGBT person. So do you think that those kinds of media depictions have a significant impact on moving people's positions?
0: I think there's two impacts there. I think one is that it, like you say, just brings them into the living room and says, this is how gay people live. And look, it's not that debauched unless it's, uh, you have to be watching, I don't know, the movie Cruising. Uh, The second thing that it does is it makes it easier for the closeted LGBT people in straight people's lives to come out. I mean, seeing gay couples on on TV is nice uh, and does a lot of work. But actually knowing them in your life, I mean, that's huge. Uh, and and facilitating that, creating a, an environment, right, where, where those people can come out. I mean, what, what a difference that makes.
1: You mentioned that in her research, Thalia found that some people said they didn't realize gay people got old. Mm. Why do you think it is that we don't see representation of LGBT elders?
0: That's a good question. Uh, I'd have to guess that, for one thing, the people who are elders right now will have grown up in an environment where there was not a lot of openness. So, you know, you just would never see LGBT people of any age up until even even the 90s or so in mainstream media i don't know i mean seldom do you see old people on tv and in movies as it is i think it might just be that we need to wait for people living their lives openly we just need to wait for those people to catch up to old age and it's possible that we'll see more depictions like the show vicious we watch the show vicious a lot you know it's got derek Jacobi and ian mckellen uh i think as people who have been open their whole lives get older we're going to see more of them in in on the screen Hopefully.
1: Sure. And you're right that we don't really see roles for older people of any persuasion, really. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Outside of the context of young people, like their grandmas or their someone's boss or something like that. Old people generally, seniors generally
1: exist as counterpoints to young people. You said that Santa Barbara County was the only Southern Californian county to reject Prop 8. That's correct. So, Los Angeles County? Yeah, hard to believe. Uh, But remember, you know, just like Oregon, as soon as you get out of
0: the dense parts, there's a lot of conservative stuff in even in LA County.
1: I mean, that's not so surprising since it's an endless hellscape. Sure, sure. I mean, I can understand the resentment wanting to make everyone else's life miserable. During the 2012 elections, the love and commitment strategy won the day. It sure did. Why did it take so long to figure that out? I don't know. Maybe
0: they were overthinking things. You know, there was so much strategy and thought about like, oh, maybe this message, maybe this message, maybe this message. Uh, It seems obvious now in hindsight, though, right? Doesn't it? Like, what could be more lovely than, uh, you know, in in voters' minds than loving someone and committing yourself to them, making a promise? You know, the stuff that people talk about when they get married at straight weddings. So why wouldn't that move people for gay weddings?
1: Why indeed. Do you find it moving? No. Of course not. So jumping back to the Los Angeles hellscape. Dateline, West Hollywood. The Supreme Court just said a thing, and there's a big rally. There sure is. And I'm holding doofy props, and Mm. I want to throw them away. So what I was thinking that day is that... The Prop 8 win wasn't really a win. It was a punt. The Supreme Court didn't get involved in the merits of the Prop 8 case. They just said that they're not in a position to hear it. The case that was actually the big win that day was the Windsor case sure. that said DOMA was invalid.
0: Yeah, yeah, the Prop 8 thing was essentially shaking up the 8 ball and saying, "Ha, the 8 ball." and saying, "Ask again later." Uh, and because we were rolling it back, well then great. That means that all of California can get married, which Is a win in that, as we're saying, the more times you see people get married, the more you get used to gay marriage happening, the more public opinion comes around. But, you know, the big the big prize was a Supreme Court ruling uh, on Prop 8 that said that states can't
1: ban marriage. Uh, And we didn't get that. Um, no, that no. it basically just said that it was sort of improperly brought to them, right? Exactly. Bring us
0: a different one in a couple of years. DOMA was different. DOMA was not a ruling on state bans. DOMA was a ruling
1: that said the federal government couldn't uh, limit marriage in the way that it was. You talk about how immersing yourself in the world of marriage made you feel like you no longer needed it. Does that make you feel like Dorothy? Dorothy from Gold Girls? <laughs> I always feel like her. I, you can't see right now, listeners,
0: but I'm wearing enormous shoulder pads. They're like up past my, the top of my head.
1: And a turkey neck.
0: A turkey neck. And these big boots, and, and I've got the flapper jewelry and scarves Chunky everywhere. Chunky bracelets. I'm wrapped in scarves. I look like a mummy. I'm also biting my
1: fist. You've just described a final fantasy boss. I have.
0: I have well you waved a staff around and summoned me and there's lightning and things and so now I'm going to take some hit
1: points. Oh good god, I hope that's in Final Fantasy 15. Be Arthur yes. is summoned. You can summon all oh. all four, all four. Yes. And if you really like if you really level up high enough,
0: you can get Coco from the pilot, the, the gay house boy. <laughs> and I don't know who else. The the chickens that they were raising in that one episode. No, they weren't chickens, they were ferrets. They were raising ferrets. They were for they food. Were. There was one episode where they were raising ferrets, no for for their pelts. Oh. Yeah, I know, it's grim Who wears ferret? I don't know, maybe it was mink I may be misremembering I'm almost definitely misremembering Because who wears
1: ferret? It's an Antonio Ferre <laughs>
0: It's pronounced Ferre mm-hmm. uh, I it, it, it feel like Dorothy uh, What do you mean? Did, you, did I feel like uh, I'd been in Oz for so long That I didn't? I wanted to go back home?
1: That you'd been looking for this thing But it was right in front of you the whole time And um, you just had to click your heels together I didn't even have to do that uh, I absolutely felt that way. I felt like I
0: what a fool I'd been. This you may not like hearing me say this, but I think that uh, I had taken you for granted for a long time, and I'd taken our relationship for granted. Even after you fell in the hog pen and I pulled you out, <laughs> yes. Even then, even then, and thrashing around in the barbed wire, and you <laughs> yanked me out. Uh, I don't know about this metaphor though, because that's you're saying like you're you're Kansas and like this dreary beige and sepia world That's, oh i'm the witch oh okay okay uh yes it's the end of the wizard of oz if dorothy had woken up in uh miss gulch's house and uh they look lovingly into each other's eyes and realized that there was a romance for the ages and, and i do they... mean the ages because they're <laughs> wildly inappropriate for those two
1: to be in a relationship Ah, yeah, let's put down the dog together <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> that is just what it's like dorothy throws toto out the window Scram, mutt, and- <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I like comparing our relationship to uh, dreary Kansas, but uh, I-, I think it's-, it's something more exciting than that. It's-, it's the Twister.
1: It's like waking up back in the Twister and realizing, this is the life for me. <laughs> Can I be the one in the rocking chair?
0: Yes, absolutely. You're either the one in the rocking chair or you're one of the guys in the boats. You remember like paddling in the, in the-, in the Twister weather?
1: Oh, I remember. Okay, good. Or you might be the cow. Oh, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> You've got a rooster on your butt. Yes, the symbology of the rooster on the butt is very mysterious. Yes. Well, this marriage, Mishigas, is really coming to a head, and you should be proud of yourself for having done a thing.
0: Thank you very much. I am proud. You should be proud of yourself too for sticking with it all the way through this podcast.
1: But who else is stuck with this? I don't know. But uh, if they have, they might have questions for you.
0: Yes, listeners, if you do have questions, please do uh, send them in. You can tweet at me at Matt Baum. I had a uh, comment uh, last week from uh, at Mike Still Lives. We were talking about the no hate photos and, and musing over what their utility could possibly be. Um, and Mike Still Lives uh, commented that, uh, "Oh, actually, that is a good tool for straight people who." Might might not have any other way to express their support for LGBTs to demonstrate that they are in support of marriage equality or just equality in general, or at the very least, a lack of hate. So, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I, I think that maybe we're a little quick to dismiss the no-hate photos, uh, but uh, they do serve a, as a visual demonstrator of support. So,
1: uh, you know, that's not nothing. And the photos are quick to dismiss your pores.
0: That's true, <laughs> yes. You, become a nice, you get a nice sheen, like you've just dipped your face into... Uh, uh
1: polyurethane well dipping your face in polyurethane is next week's show oh gosh Uh, yes that'll be for my next trick
0: (laughs) next week uh we're in the home stretch and by home i do mean home because that chapter is all about where you james and i uh, decide to live
1: i live a life on the rails a merry wanderer yeah you're a mystery no one knows if you're coming or going well if you want to know where we live so that you can do us harm you can find out by buying the book on where can they buy it
0: you can buy it on amazon uh just do a search for defining marriage or my name matt baum and if you like the book please do leave a review those reviews make a huge difference
1: oh, hoo! here's a review from lloyd p riddle hoover that's an amazing name it certainly is lloyd p riddle hoover that's Isn't it, isn't it incredible? I, he may be a wizard, or he
0: may be some sort of um, elf that, that appears at, at a bridge to pose
1: questions to you, uh, or he just may be an accountant from Duluth. Truly a wonderful book that is personal, uplifting, emotional, and full of poignant anecdotes about the battle for marriage equality.
0: Thank you so much, Lloyd P. Riddlehoover. We will just say your name over and over. I'm delighted to
1: read your review repeatedly for hours and hours just so I can say the name Lloyd P. Riddlehoover. Lloyd P. Riddlehoover. He is my patronus. And if you want Matthew to be your Patronus, you can find him on the internet.
0: Yes, please check out my other podcast, The Sewers of Paris, full of revealing stories about the entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. That's sewersofparis.com. And you can find me on the YouTubes. Uh, That's at youtube.com slash mattbaum for LGBT issues and entertainment
1: in all of my videos. This week's episode of Sewers of Paris has a pretty amazing story from Wes Hurley.
0: My gosh, it's one of the most incredible collections of stories. Uh, he grew up in Vladivostok, Russia, uh, where things were not super awesome. I mean, he started telling me about like how they dug up the cemetery next to his house, and there were just human remains washing by his house in a flood. He had to carry a butcher knife to school in his backpack for safety. Uh, there were roving gangs. There were ambulances always outside the school. And then, amazingly, um, <clears throat> the, the the thing that we really started talking about, because the enter- the, the is about entertainment, is um, how we would watch these 80s movies that would depict life in America. And it was a real random selection of things. It would be like Ghost and um, Curly Sue and some Chuck Norris film. And so he'd see these things on these pirate broadcasts at midnight on Channel 3 of just some local person who had a VHS tape and a transmitter and uh, would, would... blast these things out. And if you knew, like, turn your TV to three after midnight, and you'll be able to see this vision of life in America. And uh, so he and his mother uh, set out to to make their way to America, and through a process of mail order bride, like his mother was actually in a catalog, uh, they were able to find an American who brought them to the U.S. And then uh, things were not as they expected, not just because the movies uh, were not entirely accurate. He did not live a life of Curly Sue. Uh, but the man who brought them to the U.S. Um, was not the kind of person that they were, uh, did not want to live the kind of life that they, that they thought that they were going to have in, in America. Uh, so you can find that episode at uh, SewersOfParis.com. Uh, it is truly an incredible
1: story from Wes Hurley. He came to America and a bus fell into his building.
0: It was the neighbor's building, but yeah, he came home one day and there was a bus sticking out of his neighbor's apartment building that had fallen off of a bridge. My God. And that wasn't in Vladivostok. That was in Seattle.
1: In many ways, the Vladivostok of the West.
0: Sure it is. Uh, big thanks to uh, all the people who spoke to me this week. That's Dustin Lance Black, Kate Kendall, Jared Scherer, Sandy Steer, Chris Perry, Jeff Zerillo, Paul Katami. Until next time, friends, by the power vested in me by the internet, I hereby pronounce this podcast over.